Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing. Hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. And here we are. Another episode of The Hidden Entrepreneur Show coming your way right now. It's your host, Josh Carey. I have a really, really exciting and fascinating guest with me today. He is, in fact, a PodMax Global alumni. He went through, came out successfully on the other side. Now he is here with me today. It is Larry Forletta. How are you, Larry? Thanks, Josh, and uh, good to be with you. Excellent. So good to have you. You are, as we know, you are the founder of Forletta Investigative Security Consulting for the past 14 years. Prior to that, you spent 21 years as an undercover DEA agent working for the government. And even prior to that, you spent eight years as a Maryland state police. So uh, a lot of uh, government service under your belt. Now you've like I said, for the past 14 years, have segued into the, the private sector. Um, what, having done this transition for over a decade now, what do you find is the, let's say the most, um, either the most rewarding difference or the most stark difference of serving the two sectors there? Well, the, the, the biggest difference is um, when you work for the government, you have a lot of authority. When you go into the business sector, you have no authority. You're a private citizen. Um, and that is a challenge in itself. But uh, as a private investigator, uh, like here in Pennsylvania, you're licensed and you, you, know, you, have, uh, you belong to different associations and so forth. But again, at the end of the day, I'm a private citizen just like you, only with you know, investigative experience and recognized by the courts uh, in Pennsylvania and elsewhere uh, as a private investigator. Could we dare talk about happiness, joy? Do you find that you are more enjoying life in one of the two these days versus yesteryear? Well, yesteryear was um, a lot more dangerous, a lot more stressful. Uh, today, it's a lot less stressful. And it's uh, nice to be your own boss. And so that would be the contrast of the two. Did you find that you were, were you always heading in this direction that you were going to retire at a specific time and then become your own boss? Is this a typical path for those uh, where you came from? Well, no, it's not a typical path. I mean, a lot of uh, people in law enforcement do decide to go in the private investigative field. However, a lot of uh, people who leave the government, they'll usually take up a secondary type job after they leave government. And I was uh, opposed to that because I felt that, uh, you know, I didn't want to work for somebody else. I wanted to work for myself. I knew that I had the investigative ability and, you know, been able to communicate with the right people. And uh, so that's the reason why I decided to take that chance um, to become a private investigator because I really uh, had no plan once I was getting ready to leave the government. 
I had a couple things maybe lined up, so to speak, like background investigations. And then I just said, no, I'm not doing that. I just decided I took a risk, uh, just like a lot of business people do. And uh, because obviously I've been taking risks my whole life. Uh, and sometimes, you know, I've been lucky to be here in front of you and talking to you about it. So um, that's part of what I did for a living. And so I looked at the risk factor involved in, in, in your own running your own private business. And I, I thought that was the way for me to go. Do you find that there you've, you've always been drawn to risk? Is that something inherent? And why is that? Well, that was always part of the job. Risk is part of the job. It's a dangerous risk at times. So it's kind of hard to explain why I did it, but I really uh, enjoyed and loved my job with the government. You know, every, every morning that I got up, it was a challenge, uh, even though there's some danger involved, but it still was a challenge. To me, uh, putting major drug traffickers in federal prison, taking uh, the poison off of our streets, knowing how it would affect uh, everyone from, you know, how the drugs trickled down into schools from high schools to elementary schools to families seeing them being you know ruined by this poison that was ended our country how how does it can you can you share some of that enlighten us well so when uh when the drug traffickers are able to move their drugs across our borders um and so there's organizations here within the United States. Those drugs that come from, let's say, through Mexico, come into the United States, Los Angeles, uh, let's say New York City, uh, let's say a variety of places, Chicago, where the cartels have their tentacles. So what, what particularly works in those tentacles is that it goes, it's sort of like you have a, um, an executive from overseas, it goes to the uh, distributors here in the United States. We'll call them upper level management people. They'll distribute it to the lower management people. And then it will eventually hit the streets of the United States. That's kind of the way it works. And so there is a uh, process of drug trafficking, which goes through transportation, money laundering, uh, different ways to hide, conceal money how to get it back into Mexico, let's say, for example, and how to move the drugs across this uh, uh, great country of ours. You, in your role, in part throughout this whole process, you would embed yourself, undercover, of course, as one of the lower management receivables? Uh, it just depends. Um, it depends on uh, your informants that you had where they were part of this organization, um, whether you were able to penetrate that organization through a variety of means, including through informants. So it just depends uh, because a lot of times, and it's no secret, we do wiretaps and we intercept, you know, information through the wiretaps, through drug, et cetera. So we know the movement of these, uh, of these groups. And yes, I have been, I did infiltrate different groups, but not on that scale uh, to the uh, executive scale. So usually we would get the lower management people, so to speak, and then the lower management took us to the upper management, and then you tied everything in. And a lot of it, you know, through our federal conspiracy laws, which are probably one of the best tools that law enforcement has to tie an organization together. Because a lot of times the executives never touch the drugs. They have everybody else touch the drugs. And so once it's shipped here by plane, boat, human beings, whatever the mode of transportation is, that's how it works. And then once it gets in here, they have their own structure within that structure to distribute and dispense the drugs throughout the country. I've seen movies like Donnie Brasco, and I know that this isn't exactly that, but um, is there, yeah. from what we see in the movies, is there, is that a similar depiction of what you experienced from your book? Yeah, I, yeah some, some of it. We've had, um, we've actually had agents, not myself, 
that actually infiltrated some of the major organizations. And some of them had gotten close to some of the higher ups within the Colombian uh, drug cartels. So yeah, there, there has been that exposure to uh, DEA agents. I just wasn't one of them that got exposed to that high level uh, or organizations. And today, as the the private investigator, what what do you what what can you tell us about people that you've seen to be true? What do you are people inherently good and they've just been misguided, or is there a, a sinister aspect that you continuous continuously see? What do you make of people and our mode of living from your point of view? I would say most people are inherently good, um, but there is an evil part behind it. Um, and we go back to the drug trade. They're not inherently good people. They're evil people. They're in it for one reason, and it's money. And so they don't care where the destruction goes or where it ends. It's all about money. And so uh, that's where the evil part is. Now, when you get down to the, let's say the drug addict, not all drug addicts are evil by any stretch of the imagination. And so we have a different interpretation now uh, of a drug addict back in 2020 than we did in 1960s and 70s and even the 80s. I think it's all changed because a lot of it has been looked as a medical issue uh, as opposed to just a simple drug addiction uh, addict that laid on the streets and shot up heroin and so forth. The reason why that, I think that's all changed, because when you look at the history of narcotics in this country, let's use heroin as an example. It was mostly used by the poor communities of, of one time. And so you had all these methadone clinics in the poor neighborhoods. Now, eventually, those drugs made their way into the suburbs, suburbs, suburbia and on. And now it's changed because now it's a medical issue versus a issue that that was developed back in the 60s and 70s because it affects a different class of people. And so that's kind of the way you have to look at it. Hmm. So you've you've taken on a, um, I don't know if acceptance is the right word, but a, a new knowledge of what the old stereotype and avatar of a drug addict was versus it is now. So you, so you might have a little more empathy and compassion for it. Sure. I mean, I've seen it from way back when up until the current time. And so it's, it's changed dramatically. But again, we've now put a face and a family to the drug addict. You know, much before it was a little different. So now we begin to see that how, how this has affected everybody. And a lot of times, even people in law enforcement see their kids get addicted to drugs. That's the sad part about it. So yeah, it, it has affected every walk of life that we can think about. And those people, I believe, are inherently good people who make mistakes. And, and there's a way we shouldn't villainize them, right? That's right. We should not villainize them. The only ones that we villainize are the people who are providing the poison, mm. not the people who accept the poison. Wow. So when you were in your in your heyday as a DEA agent, what was a what was a typical, typical excitement of a day like? What did you spend your time doing? Well, well, a lot of times we did surveillances, obviously watching the bad guys, so to speak. Uh, we did drug raids, uh, which are very dangerous, by the way, uh, you know, breaking doors down, wow. going into people's houses. You know, most of them have weapons in their houses. Uh, so, you know, that was a real challenge. And you had to have the ability and knowledge about who you were dealing with, which gave us an advantage in one sense because we gathered information and intelligence about that particular individual or group of individuals that we were conducting investigations on. You... You mentioned a little bit ago that, and, and, you, and, and I know you said it was, um, it's all dangerous, obviously. Yeah. Very high level of danger to this. And I, I'm sure you have um, too many stories of close calls and whatnot. How did, you, how did you 
regroup to be able to sleep at night? Did you have and do you have um, a religious aspect or a spiritual ritual that really kept you grounded to life? Well, I mean, I grew up Catholic. Um, actually, I was an altar boy at one time. And I've always had a strong faith uh, in my beliefs. Um, and so I know uh, at the end of the day, when I went home, I had to thank somebody for letting me come home. I had a close call um, on a drug raid where, uh, and this was in Baltimore, and Baltimore is a very tough place. And uh, when we executed the search warrant, um, when we hit the door, usually it takes several bangs to pop open the door with a, uh, you know, with the, the tools that we have. And so usually we used to have, we had a, what we refer to as a ballistic shield. And usually that shield is the first person who goes in has that shield in front of them to protect them in case there's any uh, firearms or discharge of firearms. In, in this particular case, the people who are responsible to bring the shield forgot to bring it. And uh, unfortunately, I was the first person to go through the door. Now, what happened was when I went through the door, there was a gentleman about 10 feet away. He had a sawed-off shotgun, and he just fell asleep. And we were able to um, take him in custody. Um, and so, you know, that was probably the closest I ever came to being shot and killed. Um, so after the whole process, because we had to arrest a couple other people and there were more weapons and things of that nature. Um, I, I went and sat down in the, in this living room and I broke into a cold sweat, um, because I just realized five minutes ago, 10 minutes ago, 15 minutes ago, what could have happened. And, uh, that bothered me more than anything. You know, I went home and I, took a shower, I was just drenched. Uh, and I, uh, I said a little prayer and I thanked uh, God for sparing me on that particular incident. And we're, and we're talking about the idea that if he had not been asleep. Right? I, would have got, I would have been shot and killed. Right, naturally. Right. Yeah. So, so easy, easy to connect those dots chillingly, really. So what do you, what do you make of those moments which which really whether we realize them or not of course you are certainly putting yourself uh in front of more of those moments than most but even the things that like we 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 as normal citizens go about our day and we're like oh my god if i left 60 60 seconds earlier that car would have came and i would have been you know all those things sure. so what do you what do you make of, of life in those moments that they're so fragile? Well, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to detect why that happens. You know, is there some quote unquote divine intervention um, or are you at the right place at the right time? And so some of those things do happen. Some happen by mere circumstance or coincidence uh, and, and I think what it comes down to how you're able to handle that situation. Uh, my training over the years um, helped me get through a lot of these dangerous moments. Um, in fact, you know, I've, as I mentioned, I've worked undercover. I posed as a drug dealer uh, selling drugs to some real bad guys. Um, so, you know, you learn how to, to deal with yourself and you learn how to deal with people, especially the criminal element, because they have a different mindset than what you and I are sitting and talking about and looking at each other about what could or should have happened. And so those are the kind of things that over the years that I know that I've been blessed and fortunate that things didn't turn bad. Wow. What do you make of um, the, the, the traits, the qualities, the skills, the talents, the abilities that you've honed all these years now as an entrepreneur to take into your business today, 
what specific traits and qualities and skills now work in your favor as a private business owner? Well, the traits really are my experience and training that I developed over the years and working with people because in, in my future or uh, in my uh, life before the private investigation side, you have to know how to work with people. That means other law enforcement agencies, the general public, federal prosecutors, mm -hmm. judge, lawyers, you, you, it, it just goes on and on. And you know, if you're a people person, like I am, you know how to get along with people. And if you treat people with respect, you get it back. It's real simple. And uh, you know, when you're in a law enforcement profession, there, there's a lot of different personalities. Uh, just like there is in any business. There's egos, there's, there's all the above. And so if you bring people into your uh, business, so to speak, working together because you're out to accomplish a mission, then I think it makes everybody's job a lot easier. And so I've used those traits and I've applied them in the private sector. So what I do is when I work with clients or uh, especially in the in the legal profession, they know about me because of my background. They know because we may have been foes at one time in the uh, judicial system. But the one thing that they could take away was that I was an honest person. Integrity was my utmost quality and respect and treating people the right way. And uh, and you when you're in a position of power, you're never supposed to abuse it. And unfortunately, we have seen abuse of power that's gone on even in our own government. Yeah, that's a um, an entire direction we can go that I'm sure you have thoughts on. I want to ask you about communication because it sounds like you've, you've touched on that and that's what you were really also in saying you're a people person and you really have to be to get the buy-in and the collaboration and cooperation with others. Uh, you also believe that to be a, you have to be a good communicator through all this. Yes, absolutely. You have to communicate. And so that's what I do with my clients. I communicate with the clients. I make sure that they have a complete understanding on how we're going to do something and how I'm going to do something and how they're not going to do something. Um, so we have our own policies and procedures that I've encompassed into my own business um, so that people understand if there's another investigator that's working with me, they understand where I'm coming from. If there's clients, they understand where I'm coming from. And, uh, and I think people respect you when you're honest about, uh, your, your profession. And so I've never had any agenda and uh, I never had anything to hide. And that's a mistake that a lot of people make. You know, they try to limit what they're going to tell you. And in the end, you find out anyways. So in your current private investigator business, um, businesses, corporations, companies hire you to investigate people, places, events, things. Um, do you find that we as a society are, do you find that our suspicions are founded or unfounded? Well, it depends on the type of investigation. Well, let's say, for example, you have an internal theft case um, where um, somebody suspects that somebody may be stealing. Uh, one case in mind was a person who worked for a church uh, was stealing money uh, from the collections. Mm. Uh, on a regular basis and was going into the safe in the church and taking money. Mm. So yeah, those, those type of cases, you know, and, and other type of thefts, uh, just, uh, in businesses. So when people have suspicious suspicions about others, uh, I'd say most of them turn out to be true. Right. Money's being taken from the safe. No, nobody can dispute that. And now it's just a matter of who's doing it, why they're doing it. And right. Exactly. 
Wow. Exactly. Hey there, entrepreneurs. Eric Cabral here, founder of On Air Brands and host of the Entrepreneur Circle and Capital Hacking. I wanted to share something truly unique with you that we've created called Pod Max, which is an amazing opportunity to connect you with major podcasts to help you share your fascinating stories with their communities. This unique invitation-only event includes interviews with you on top-rated business podcasts all in one day. It also provides a unique networking opportunity with high-performance guests and thought leaders who are authors, coaches and consultants, investors, speakers, executives, you name it. These are the type of people that you need to be around. We also provide industry expert keynotes to hit our stage to share insights on podcasting, investing, marketing to help you take things to the next level. And the cool thing about Podmax is that it has a multimedia agency engine behind it with on-air brands to provide social media promotions before and after the event to share your brand new shows with your network. So hit the apply now button at podmax.co and I hope to see you at the next Podmax event. Let's talk about fear for a moment. My whole brand, The Hidden Entrepreneur, was founded on the idea that I spent a lifetime hiding behind my own fear, letting that keep me at a distance from what I really wanted and should have been doing. You, my goodness, I don't think even if you were scared out of your mind, your role would not stand for you not showing up, not moving ahead. Has there ever been a time in this role where, I mean, it, it did take you back for a minute, even, though, even if you had to work through, like, does one thing stand out? Well, you know, um, fear is really not a bad trait because it makes you aware of the potentials around you. I was uh, doing an investigation in Guatemala and, uh, we found a uh, fugitive that we were after. And uh, so I spent about eight days there trying to find him. And of course, working with the DE agents assigned to Guatemala City, mm. along with our counterparts of the, of the uh, National Treasury Police in, in, uh, in Guatemala. So those kind of situations, um, there's definitely some fear there. Because uh, where I was at at the time, uh, Guatemala had just ended a civil war. Uh, the military was a very powerful force in Guatemala, and they are in a lot of third world countries. So you begin to wonder, you know, is it worth me being out here uh, with a group of guys and risking our lives to catch somebody? Uh, because uh, in Guatemala or Mexico, where I've been, they have a different concept of law enforcement. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with corruption. Mm. And so their idea of justice in one sense is a little bit different maybe from ours. But on the other hand, there's still a lot of good people there. Uh, but because of their circumstances, they may have to do things a different way. Mm. So you also, through all of this role and success and who you are and where you've been, you were able to appear on, a, on an Oxygen Network special on the Smiley Face Killers. First, how do you, how do you feel? Does the, do you enjoy when you're called to be on camera and in front of the camera? Well, you have to go back a little bit because the case in itself was challenging because it was a missing person. And I had to deal with the family for about 40 days of dealing with trying to find their son. So the oxygen network, I had no idea that that was ever going to take place. That came back, that came by later. So we were doing the investigation mm. and eventually it came to that point, but I had no clue that that would ever be on a national network on that particular case. And so that was really um, a total surprise to me when, it, when I was approached. Do you have any feeling one way or another um, when it happens? Like, do, do, do you enjoy that opportunity or is it just par for the course? Well, I, 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 one, I would say it's par for the course, but I, I Remember, there's human beings involved in this, and there's families. And that is always the challenging part. I mean, if 
when you have a child and you lose that child, you know, until you walk in that person's shoes, you have no idea of the struggles that they go through mentally, uh, physically. And so it was challenging to me in the sense that I had to deal with this distraught family, helping them trying to find their son. Now we worked with law enforcement. We had a big coordinated effort. Uh, we probably searched a hundred miles of water, uh, looking for this young man. And eventually he turned up in the water in March of 2018. He disappeared in, in January. So it was cold and in, in Pittsburgh, you know, the weather gets cold and we have the three rivers there, as you probably heard of. And the Allegheny is one of the main rivers, Monongahela and the Ohio, which is a major river. And uh, he surfaced uh, in the Ohio River uh, downstream. So, yeah, that was a challenge. And uh, so those, those types of things are very unpredictable. We just didn't know where it was going to happen and if we were ever going to find him. And uh, fortunately, we did at least put some sense of closure to the family. How do you how do you allow your natural human emotion to process and cycle through your body? Because I'm guessing all throughout public service, private service, like you just painted that that's one one small example of a whole lifetime of examples where emotion is emotion. Sometimes you probably can't show emotion or at the time, sometimes you probably aren't processing it because something else is happening. How right. do you, how do you personally deal with that? Well, you know, it's difficult at times, um, but I've learned to uh, be able to adjust to situations. And that came with my, in my career about handling different situations. You never take the human element out of it because you're a human being. That's the first thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I, you can get emotional at times. And there have been times when I've gotten emotional. But I've had to walk away from letting anybody see me get emotional. Mm. Because that was not my role. My role was to help the family do the best job that I could for them and try to resolve that particular issue. You've, you've broken down. Are we talking about breaking down in tears uncontrolled? Well, yeah. I, oh, yeah. I mean, I've had those moments where I've had to walk away and, and you get teared up uh, because that's just a, a natural reaction. I mean, again, I'm not a robot, you know, I'm a human being and human beings have emotions. And uh, I came from a very emotional Italian-American family. So my emotions were already there. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and being in a, growing up in, in that type of environment, that type of neighborhood, it was just uh, family. People loved each other. And we had some great times. And uh, that's where it all began for me. But again, that was all part of my culture at one time in my life. Whether it's today or in the past, how do you how do you unwind? How do you let loose? How do you balance? You know, leave leave the work behind. What do you find yourself engaging in? The the best thing for me is physical activity. Whether I go for a run, a walk, lift weights those type of things there because it, it pushes away all the other stuff and gives you an open and clear mind. So even by today's standards, I walk every morning, every morning, because I know when I wake up, I have to do it and it energizes me for the day. It clears my mind. It gives me some peace within myself and uh, exercise has always been something that's been part of my life from high school sports, and then in the law enforcement, it was just, it's like waking up every morning and brushing your teeth. That's what I do every day. And I still do it. I know that this could be a hot topic, so I'll allow you to go as far or as little as you want. Would you, would you recommend somebody go into law enforcement and a government role today? Well, today, you know, law enforcement is facing a real challenge. I don't think in, in the history 
of law enforcement that they've ever faced the challenge as it is going on today. They've had some challenges uh, and things have worked out, but now there's a culture out there uh, that really want to uh, do away with the police. And anybody who has any sanity knows that's not the way to go. Um, because I'll give Seattle as a prime example. You know, the, the, the mayor there said, well, you know, this is just going to be a summer of fun, summer of joy. And what happened was the criminal element took over Seattle. And they had their little uh, six-block neighborhood. And so what happens? Well, what happened was two people lost their lives. Sexual assaults took place. And so, and then they went and marched on the mayor's front door. And probably she finally figured it out that we've got to do something about this. It's out of control. Well, they let it get out of control. That's lawlessness. It can't happen in our country. Not for a minute, not for a second. Because what happened in Seattle is just a prime example that this rest of the country would see happen if there was no police. It's total lawlessness. And it's inexcusable for politicians. I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. You swear to uphold the Constitution and you swear to protect the citizens of your community. That's who you should be concerned about. Not some movement, not some terrorist group, not the criminal element, but protecting the victims of society. That's who you should be looking out for. And people depend on the police. The people in poor communities really depend on the police. And this has all been my you know, thing speaking out about this because at the end of the day, the poorest communities will suffer. Some of the upper middle class, the wealthy, they have pearly gates. They have private security. But when those gates close, they're protected. These poor folks in these poor communities don't have that. They have only one thing, and that's to call the police. And so with that type of rhetoric, they're only hurting the citizens of the poorest communities by not having the police enforce the law. What is the message you're speaking out on, you said? What is the core message you love to share? Well, I think the core message is we have to support our law enforcement. And here's the reason why. We'll have chaos. Now, let's be blunt about this. There are bad cops. I put some of them in federal prison. But there are a small percentage of bad cops. The majority of law enforcement, whether it's on the local, state, or federal level, are honest, hardworking people. Um, and so that's been a big misconception. And the other misconception that, that I find sustainable is systematic racism uh, called about law enforcement. That's not true. I think law enforcement has made a big change in the last 30 years. Affirmative action. We have, uh, you know, we have a lot of minorities in the law enforcement community now. Some of them are chiefs of police, heads of organizations. So, uh, and when you look at even NYPD, you know, their bulk of the law enforcement police officers are minorities. So when people make those type of comments, those are political misstatements. And so they're, they're trying to poison the well. And that's not the way it really is. That's not reality. And that's certainly not what happens within the law enforcement community. Again, we know there's bad apples there. I told, you know, and I said, we put them in prison. Bag, there's no there's no room for bad guys in uniform. None. Zero. I feel that way, and I can speak for the rest of the honest, hardworking, dedicated professionals in law enforcement feel the same way as I do. Hmm. You feel like you're going to ride this private investigator business of yours out into the foreseeable future? This is what excites you, what, what, what you find most enjoyable. Yeah, you know, I, I, I enjoy it. I still enjoy it at this point. And it's just like when I knew, no longer enjoyed where I was at, that it was time for me to leave. And I'll know when it's time for me to leave. I knew 
when it was time to end my career. I went out um, the right way. A lot of people uh, in my profession struggle to leave uh, because they don't know what they're going to do in life. Mm. And it's a different, a different world. Uh, so in, I took that challenge of going into the private sector because I knew that I didn't know how my business was going to turn out. You know, there's peaks and valleys in the business. You know, I'm not guaranteed a check every two weeks. Uh, and I have a lot of respect for people like you who are entrepreneurs, you know, self-made, uh, because I still get a retirement check at the end of the day and I can still pay my bills. Okay. But I earned it. Um, so, and, and that's kind of the approach. I mean, I have a lot of law enforcement people that call me all the time looking for advice on how to set up a PI business. Wow. Um, and so tomorrow I'm going to meet with somebody who's brand new, just left working for a state organization and I'm going to try to help them, uh, you know, get into the business, so to speak. Is this like a consulting arm then, or it's not that official? Well, it's, it's a, it's a consulting in one sense, but it's free of charge. For now? Yeah, for now. Um, Until you start looking people. I mean, I love that. I just connected those dots. So you've done it successfully. You can't and are not taking it for granted. And people are like, um, how did you do that? I want to do exactly that. Yeah. Then you can start your, your podcast and your show. I don't know who your audience would be. Maybe it's for your ideal client. And now you start teaching them the, uh, the way sure. to go about things. Well, I, I think, yeah. And that's why I was, when we, when I took, the PodMax, I looked at as meeting different people from different perspectives and uh, broaden my horizons. And, uh, and I think that's the way it should be. And so I'm, I'm a person who um, has an open mind, uh, accepts challenges, doesn't accept no as an answer, and works hard at trying to resolve that no. So, uh, and that's, that's always been me, even in my own field of investigations. You know, I've had supervisors tell me, ah, oh, you should close the case. It's not going anywhere. Right. And the next thing you know, it goes, it goes. It right? goes. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so it's, it was always a good feeling to walk in my supervisor's office and go, Oh, by the way. Yeah. It went, it went yeah, right. and it's working now. And it's, it's going to make you look good. <laughs> I see a, um, a, a common theme here between things like that, between things like knowing exactly how and when to transition from government service to your own private business, taking that challenge, that risk. Um, and then also through, through everything you do today, right? Through private investigation, I'm sure that it all comes down to um, trusting your your instinct, right? Trusting your gut. That must be vitally important from decades ago, right? In every oh, yeah. It, yeah, it is. And actually, you know, uh, I have lawyers. A lot of them are friends of mine, a lot of clients. And they'll call me and ask me for advice on certain things. Um, and I don't charge them for that free advice. <laughs> but again, they trust my opinion they trust my expertise. And so when you trust somebody that much, you're going to pick up the phone and call them and ask them certain questions. Wow. And, the, and, and they know that what, whatever exchange we had is confidential. So they don't ever have to worry about me saying anything that somebody said something to me. And that's obviously, that was all part of my training in law enforcement. You know, it's on a need to know basis. And if you don't need to know, you just aren't going to know. And that's kind of the way I do it. So. so talking about your trusting your gut, trusting your instincts, you must have honed that very, very immensely, right? To whatever you feel, whatever you believe, you'll, you'll go down? Or is there a second layer where you're like, no, but I then need to verify through the investigation. Where does one end and the other begin? Well, in any investigation, you need to verify. And here's the reason why. 
because you work with a lot of informants. Informants are criminals. Mm. They're part of the criminal element. Okay, they're not Mother Teresa. Okay, and so when they come to you and they're providing me information and saying, "Oh, hey, you know, Josh, he moves tons of cocaine, or he does this, or he does that." Well, we need to verify that. Not simply that you told me that something was going on or taking place. And there's a variety of means in law enforcement that you use to verify that information. Now, if you don't verify that information, that's where you can get yourself in trouble. No doubt about it. Hmm. Because again, as I mentioned to you, they're part of the criminal element. And sometimes as informants, they like to play both sides of the fence. And uh, sometimes they do it against their competition. And other times, you know, they're, they got federal drug charges that they're facing a long prison sentence. So you have to make sure that whatever they're telling you, that you're able to independently verify that information. I know um, negotiation skills in, in life and in business are um, very, very um, beneficial. Is that a big element in your day-to-day and has it been? Yeah, I mean, negotiation actually started when I was working undercover. So if you, know, if you knew how to negotiate with, with uh, quote-unquote bad guys, so to speak, and get things worked out, uh, that becomes a lot easier as you transition into the civilian life. Because when you're dealing with somebody who doesn't have the mindset of a criminal, that's just the average person, <laughs> you can really negotiate with them <laughs> if you follow what I'm saying. So wow. that's a technique that you learn. You know, for example, the old saying used to be, never front the money. That means if you fronted the money to the bad guy, be prepared to get ripped off. And then so you have to negotiate how the money transaction is going to take place, where they're going to bring the dope, how this is going to happen, how that's going to happen. So in, in the private sector, you still don't front the money. You get a retainer. So that's how that works. So if you didn't, if I didn't get a retainer from somebody, then I can in my wills and they can just say, well, you know, you didn't get what you were supposed to get. We're not going to pay you. So you have to get that money up front uh, as a retainer that we do normally, like most lawyers do, uh, because what you're doing, you're, you're being paid for your time and your expertise. And sometimes you can accomplish it. And sometimes the reality, you just don't. Um, and so that's kind of the way it works. What's important to Larry Forletta? What do you value? One word. Family. Why is that? Well, as I mentioned to you from my early years on, I was taught how important my family was of a group of Italian immigrants that came from Italy, settled. Uh, you know, we had a loving household, strong family ties. Um, and so I took those traits and uh, brought it with me for my own family. And so uh, I value uh, every day, you know, that I have two beautiful children. Uh, and uh, fortunately enough to, to know that they're on the right path, but I'm lucky because there's another, there's some people who are not so lucky. So that's what I've always valued. And I made career decisions that it didn't affect my family. So those career decisions that I made, I knew that it came down to valuing, valuing my family because I could have went on the management path working for the government. Um, and I chose not to do that because once you go on that management path, you bounce all over the country. Mm. You know, you're moving your families here. You're moving your families there. It's like being in the military, you know. And for me, I just didn't think it was beneficial for my kids. So my family came first. My job came second. 
That's amazing. I started this conversation saying that uh, this is this is fascinating, and I can go on and on. What are you wrapping it up into, if we can? One nice, neat bow for the listener. What are we saying? What's the overall theme and message here? Well, I, I think uh, from my perspective, the overall theme is trust. And trust is a very important denominator on the people or in the persons that you're working with. And trust goes a long way. And so when somebody trusts you, they trust your judgment, they trust your character, they trust your integrity. And so that to me is a very important aspect of life in law enforcement and in the private sector, because that is, that is the ultimate goal because it gets, it has that attraction to you as a person. Absolutely. Well, well said. I will leave you with this final question I ask of all my guests. Larry Forletta, how would you like to be remembered? Well, I, I think I would like to be remembered as a person of integrity, of a person who lived by standards, uh, of a, as a person who uh, helped other people in life, uh, not just in my law enforcement role, but working with kids, coaching, doing a lot of different things in life. Uh, that to me is, is most important. This has been absolutely eye-opening and spectacular. Thank you kindly for coming on and showing up and opening up in the way you have. It's been, uh, it's been an incredible dialogue. Thank you, Larry. And thanks again, Josh, for having me. And thank you for everybody tuning in. Uh, if you've enjoyed this, please share it with a friend. I love reading your reviews and notes, so feel free to keep those rolling in. You know the deal. We're going to do this again. We're going to have another episode not too far behind. Before we do, thanks for tuning in. As always, go get them. Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.